One night, a butcher, a baker, and a candlestick maker went to a hotel. They stayed there for three days. On the last day, they got their bill. It was for four people. Who was the fourth? It was the one night. Get it? K-N-I-G-H-T. Like a knight in shining armor. <laughs> Hello everybody and welcome to Starting Sustainability. This is episode 123, hosted by me, yours truly, Kaylin Chenoweth. Hey there, hi there, ho there. We are back from vacation. Woo! <laughs> and here's what you missed from the last two weeks. That's right, we are going to catch up with Kaylin right now. On Thursday, June 9th, we paid off Channing's truck and we were debt free except for the house. That was a milestone and a huge celebration for us. Notice I said were. <laughs> the very next day, not even kidding, the water pump went out on his truck. And this is why some people say to never pay off your car because once you pay it off, it breaks down the next day. I just thought that was the saying, but apparently it is 1000% true. We were going to take the truck on vacation, but instead we got to take my small SUV because the truck had to go to the shop on Friday night. And on Saturday morning, we basically had to make a lot of tough decisions on what we could bring and what had to stay behind. We fit a family of four into two suitcases, a small cooler for lunches and snacks on the car drive, a bag of toys for entertainment on the car drive, a pack and play, so Colt had a place to sleep at night, and then we we're out of space, so no big cooler of food, which meant we had to buy everything when we got to the Wisconsin Dells. Fishing poles got cut out, and the stroller had to stay behind, which we knew was a mistake, but there was no other way to make it fit, so it had to go. But now we both have very strong arms from carrying our children around for the past week. Let me tell you a little bit about our vacation. There were 30 of us who made it up to the Wisconsin Dells. Each family had their own cabin and all the cabins were in the same resort area. Each day, everyone did their own thing and went out on adventures and excursions. Then at night, we all came together for dinner and some activities. This was my sister Raelle's 40th birthday celebration. So on the first night, we had a Wisconsin welcome theme. We all rolled in at different times, so we just kept it small and did a charcuterie board. We all bought and brought in local cheese and beer because that's what Wisconsin is known for. <laughs> on Sunday night, it was Raelle's birthday celebration and we gave it a superhero theme. We all dressed up as superheroes. We could either make up our own or mimic an existing one. It was so much fun. Everybody came complete with capes and masks and names, dressed to the nine. Then we had an 80s neon night where we danced to some of the 80s classics and wound down the evening with a movie night. We had a projector and we got to watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off which I had not seen that movie for a long, long time. It was very fun <laughs> revisiting that movie. And then we topped it all off with a Mexican night where we had Mexican food and pinatas. 
The pinatas were so tough after each kid literally had about 10 turns each and there was still no progress. Then the adults got to take turns, no blindfolds, just beating the daylights out of the pinatas. And the pinatas were in the shape of tacos to go along with Mexican night, which is really awesome. There are two pinatas. So between the kids and the adults, it took almost an hour to bust those suckers open. Those were some high quality pinatas. During the day, our family, as in Chaining the kids and I, we went to Deer Park and the kids thought that was like the greatest thing in the world to get to feed the deer. And we did a boat tour of the Upper Dells one day and we got to learn about and appreciate the natural beauty. We got to go to a magic show, which was really cool for all ages. We visited an exploratory, which was very hands-on, lots of games and activities and puzzles, fun for everybody. We all had a great time. And then we just checked out the shops and went for a stroll on the last day and we bought one souvenir. Channing and I have a backpack that we got at the beginning of our relationship like 10 years ago. And every time we travel to a new place, we buy a patch and sew it on the backpack. So we got a patch from the Wisconsin Dells and that was our one and only souvenir. Well, plus lots of memories and photos. Overall, it was a great vacation, extremely family friendly. So if you're looking for a hot spot to go to with your family, I highly recommend the Wisconsin Dells. There's definitely something there for everyone. Once we got home, we had to face the reality about our truck. It's only a 2016 and it is so rusted out underneath that that is why the water pump literally fell off. And there are also a handful of other things wrong with it, all related to rust. So I'm not sure what we're going to do going forward. My car is paid off, but it won't fit three car seats. We were already in the market for a new vehicle for me to drive. And now we get to reevaluate <laughs> on what we're going to do because now we're in the market for two new vehicles, apparently. Well, new to us, we're not buying brand new. Luckily, time is on our side right now. So we can do a lot of research and make some informed decisions. In other good news, my garden survived us being gone for an entire week. <laughs> and the nursery I originally bought all the plants from had a free vegetable sale yesterday. So during my lunch, I went and got a ton more vegetable plants. It's definitely too late in the season to plant and harvest, which is why they were all free. But hey, I figured at least I can get one or two tomatoes or peppers off of them try them, taste them, and if they're delicious, great. And then I can keep the fruit or the vegetable and gather the seeds from it and save it for next year. Because many of those plants are heirlooms and you won't be able to find those at big nurseries or big box stores, just at these small little places. Also, I walked our property when we got back and we have black raspberry bushes. I ate some of the berries, so delicious. And the mulberry trees are still producing mulberries. I was so certain that birds were going to eat them all, <laughs> but we are still producing mulberries, which is great. I ate a few mulberries about three to four weeks ago and was super disappointed because they had no flavor. It was like eating water. And just for the heck of it, I tried them again yesterday and they were ridiculously flavorful and even sweeter than the black raspberries. So now I need to go picking and save the berries for either a jam or a syrup or something. But I am super stoked that I have forageable plants on my property now. Foraging is a great way to eat sustainably, but I understand that it is not a simple thing for most people. Another way to eat sustainably is to learn about ethical eating practices. Today, that's what we will be going over. 
Most of this information comes from an article titled The Complexities of Ethical Eating, written by Marissa Theory, who is a registered dietitian. And I used information that I got from the International Open Academy class by Get Mary Johansson, specifically the lesson titled The Impact of Food. If you think about it, for the longest time, the number one driving factor behind consumer food choices has been taste. When you go to the store, which brand do you buy? The one that you have the taste or the preference for. However, we are now seeing a shift in a more value-driven considerations like social justice, animal welfare, and environmental stewardship. Due to this shift in consumerism, the idea of ethical eating is becoming more mainstream. What is ethical eating? Ethical eating refers to the consideration of the economic, social, and environmental impacts of purchasing or consuming foods and beverages. There are many categories that factor into ethical eating, and I will do my best to give a brief overview of them all. The first is social justice. For many, protecting and supporting workers' rights is of utmost importance. Issues such as equal pay, gender equality, diversity and inclusion, forced labor, and child labor are complex considerations. Labor practices tie in with social justice. Approximately 15% of the food eaten in the United States is grown or produced internationally. To be honest, that number is a whole lot lower than I thought it was going to be. There are many commodities, including coffee, bananas, chocolate, and avocados. They're imported to the U.S. from Mexico, Central America, and South America. Seafood eaten in the U.S. is primarily imported from China, Thailand, Canada, Indonesia, Vietnam, and Ecuador. The good news is importing foods can support international relations and help bring steady income to small farmers and growers overseas. The bad news is it also means that some relevant regulation often falls outside of U.S. jurisdiction. Challenges associated with imported foods include reduced labor standards and enforcement than what is generally found in the U.S. This means, for example, the seafood industry has been under scrutiny for human rights abuse within the supply chain, primarily driven by the presence of forced labor. According to a 2018 report from the USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service, Thailand has been listed as a country with prevailing problem of human trafficking and illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing. Pressure from other countries, including the U.S., has limited some of their fishing activity, along with increased awareness of illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing in Asia-Pacific countries. For U.S. companies that source seafood from international locations, transparency throughout the entire supply chain is a challenge. This is because many ships and vessels rely on third parties for labor recruitment. In many regions, these third-party agencies may be unregulated and require minimal monitoring and documentation of the recruited employees. This limits transparency into labor and recruitment practices like workers' contracts, compensation structure, and working hours. Many recruited employees are migrants from other regions and are vulnerable to exploitation through poor wages and working conditions. In some instances, human trafficking has been observed. In other instances, employees enter into work voluntarily and circumstances evolve into a forced labor situation. More good news is, <laughs> activists have called for policy reform to protect workers' rights and increase transparency throughout the supply chain. Additionally, Thailand's government has committed to complying with illegal, 
unregulated and unreported fishing regulations and established a fishery monitoring and surveillance system, including framework to prevent the exploitation of labor. Other examples are coffee and cocoa used to make chocolate. Some have a robust fair trade certification system in place, while others do not. Buying fair trade means the product meets environmental, economic, and social standards that support and protect farmers and their communities from injustices, like unfair wages, while also protecting the environment. However, it is not a perfect system. There are arguments against fair trade certifications because they create an uneven economic advantage for coffee growers compared to farmers and growers of other crops. The second category of ethical eating is animal welfare. The good news is many stakeholders, including government entities, commodity groups, third-party certifying bodies, and special interest groups, set standards for the humane treatment of animals in the food supply chain, including those intended for food production and labor. There's a thing called the Five Freedoms of Animal Welfare, and this is a globally accepted framework for standard of care used for animals raised for food production. So for factory farming. This framework is often used as a baseline for the animals, including poultry and cattle and all the others. Now the bad news. Despite regulations and standards, claims and labels associated with animal welfare can lead to consumer confusion. For example, there's a host of claims allowed on a carton of eggs. These include cage-free, free-range, and pastured. Cage-free indicates that a hen was able to walk around the hen house before laying the egg. Free range signifies the eggs come from cage-free hens that were allowed outside, sometimes in a fenced-in space. Pastured or pasture-raised typically means eggs come from hens that had the ability to roam free on natural pastures. The term pastured eggs may sound like the most humane and ethical treatment, but more freedom means exposure to outside elements, sources of infection, and violent interaction with other hens or predators. Then there's also pasteurized eggs. <laughs> this means they are heated up in the shell to a temperature to kill off bacteria, but not high enough of a temperature to cook the egg. When I worked at a nursing home, we were required to only buy pasteurized eggs because the residents are considered a high-risk population. As you can see, there is a lot of confusion when it comes to the claims and labels about animal welfare on the packaging. The third category of ethical eating is environmental stewardship. It is very difficult to say if certain plant products are good or bad for the environment. A plant that is unsustainable to me might be very sustainable to you. It really depends on where you live and take into consideration transportation, importing, and exporting. The more we move food around, the larger the carbon footprint is. For example, avocados getting imported to Northern Europe is very unsustainable. However, avocados in Mexico and Southern California is a much smaller footprint. Fun fact, it takes almost 60 gallons of water to grow one avocado. Determining which plants are or are not sustainable is difficult. I'm going to attempt to talk about them in hopes of bringing some clarity. It won't be perfectly clear, but it will help in understanding the discussions. Climate change and deforestation are two key factors in environmental stewardship. Climate change refers to long-term changes to Earth's usual weather patterns, while deforestation refers to the loss or reduction of forest land for production across several industries. 
usually farming. <laughs> Deforestation has a compounding effect because it also contributes to climate change by reducing forest land that would otherwise keep excess carbon out of the atmosphere. First up is avocados. They rose in popularity over the past few years and the production was forced to increase quickly to keep up with the demand. This made it very difficult to implement sustainable production methods. Majority of avocados come from Mexico. The problem here is that avocado communities are controlled by drug cartels. You also have to take pesticide use and soil erosion into consideration. When one specific food item is very popular, it results in a monoculture. A monoculture is a large area of land that only grows one thing. Here in Indiana, we grow corn. We also grow soybeans. And you'll notice farmers will have, if you drive down a road, on the east field is all corn and on the west field is all soybeans. Then the very next year, the farmer will flip-flop the two crops. They call it crop rotation. This prevents the monoculture and it keeps the soils healthy. But when you only have one thing growing in the same spot year after year, that is a monoculture. Monocultures are detrimental to biodiversity, mostly because the diverse part has been removed. Fields are very unnatural. Think of a natural setting like a forest, a nice mix of plants and animals. They live and grow together and take care of pest control, weeds, fertilization. Farm fields need to be worked in order for plants to grow. The soil must get tilled. Weed killer must be spread, seeds planted. Fertilizer is spread. It's gotta be watered regularly. After harvest, we go through and blend up all the bits of the plant left over to break down and compost for next year's crop to be planted. The forest has plants, animals, bugs, fungi, and bacteria to do all of that work. There are not rototillers, crop dusters, irrigation systems, or combines in a forest. Monocultures result in extinctions and deforestation. Now on to palm oil. This was the initial topic of me doing all of this research. I wanted to figure out why is palm oil so bad and doing all this research exploded into this gigantic episode that all encompasses one another. So I felt like I had to talk to you about all of it. Anyways, back to palm oil. One third of all vegetable oil in the world comes from palm oil. Palm oil is primarily produced in Indonesia and Malaysia. Palm oil is the world's most common vegetable oil. It's naturally trans fat free, which is great in terms of health because trans fats are bad. And palm oil is extremely versatile in both food systems and other industries, including cosmetics and biofuels. But its effect on the food system is complicated and largely misunderstood. Because palm is a tropical crop grown in specific conditions, sourcing is limited to designated regions near the equator. As demand for palm oil continues to rise, clearing land for production has resulted in destruction of habitats for endangered species, such as orangutans, as well as loss of biodiversity. It's another monoculture resulting in detrimental effects to the land and surrounding areas. The production of palm oil is more efficient than soybean oil, its closest alternative, requiring significantly less land to produce the same yield. Additionally, palm oil is an important part of emerging economies and the livelihood of small farmers. When considering factors like cost, versatility, nutrition profile, land use, and small farmer support, there is not a clear ethical alternative to palm oil. Instead of replacing palm oil entirely, an alternative approach is to improve its sustainability. 
The Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil, RSPO, is a nonprofit focused on developing and implementing sustainable palm oil practices globally. Different levels of RSPO certified palm indicate the degree of environmental and social sustainability of the products. According to RSPO, purchasing products made with sustainable palm oil is an ethical solution that can help support smallholder farmers and encourage more organizations to improve the sustainability of their supply. When you go grocery shopping, you will notice palm oil is in a lot of items. It is very tough to avoid. When purchasing items with palm oil, look for the RSPO certification. Next up is soy. Like palm, soy is a common ingredient throughout the world. In fact, soy is the globe's primary source of protein. It also is rich in essential amino acids, making it an accessible and useful ingredient. In addition to cooking, soy is widely used as feed for livestock that later becomes human food. Soy that humans eat is not bad. 98% of the soy that is produced is fed to livestock. Phasing out factory farming and not supporting this industry is a good way to negate the detrimental effects of growing soy. While U.S. grown soybeans are certified sustainable, <laughs> glad to hear that because here in Indiana we farm a lot of cornfields and soybean fields and I was starting to feel really guilty that we were growing soy, but in the U.S. it's sustainable. Good. Outside the U.S., soy has been associated with deforestation in certain regions of the world. Significant amounts of natural resources such as water must be used in soy production. Efforts to improve supply include developing sustainable production practices and encouraging biodiversity. How about nuts? Are you nuts for nuts? I'm nuts for nuts. I love eating nuts. Almonds and cashews require a lot of water to produce. So if you want to make a plant milk, using oats is a way better, smaller carbon footprint. Search for local nuts to reduce the carbon emissions associated with transportation. The good news is nuts can be found all over the world, so you most certainly have some type of local nut or nuts and seeds. Northern Europe has hazelnuts as a local treat. The U.S., wide variety here. We've got walnuts, almonds, hazelnuts, pistachios, and peanuts. Macadamia nuts are primarily found in Hawaii and Australia. Pecans, those grow in the U.S. southern states and Mexico. That's just to name a few. There are plenty of nuts all over the world. Just try to find the ones that are local to your region. Now I know no one wants to hear this, <laughs> but coffee is also on this list. Coffee has a large carbon footprint. To be most effective in reducing carbon footprint would be to give it up. And that's why I'm pretty sure nobody wants to hear this part. So maybe instead of, instead of giving it up, we just focus on reducing the amount consumed and switch to a local coffee if that's in your area or finding the fair trade sustainable coffee that you can. May I even suggest switching to a seasonal tea instead. Teas do have caffeine as well, but they're not the same as coffee. I understand that. Chocolate is also on the list and that's a shame because that's my favorite. <laughs> Chocolate uses a lot of water, resources, land, and transportation. Not to mention that cocoa is mixed with sugar. The sugar industry, all sugars, are detrimental to the planet. <laughs> and I have such a sweet tooth. <laughs> so chocolate is doubly bad. Most sweet treats we buy, cookies, cakes, candies, chocolates, don't have organic fair trade sugar and often involve child labor. Ugh, so now it's triply bad. You don't have to give up chocolate. 
because I don't think that I can, so I'm not going to ask you to. But please be mindful of supporting companies who focus on producing chocolates and sweets the right way. And you can find sustainable chocolates. Once I found out about this, which was quite a while ago, actually, about how bad chocolate is, then I started actively searching for fair trade, sustainable chocolates made with organic products. And they're right there in the grocery stores. You can find them. So they're not that hard. They do cost a little bit more, but I'm not going to lie. They also taste really good. Come on, the stuff that we make here in the U.S., like Hershey's, is crap chocolate. <laughs> I want good chocolate. And the last food item on the list to be aware of is beef. I'm sure many of you are already aware about the detrimental effects of beef, but if you're new and you're getting caught up, I'm just going to do a quick recap for you. Cattle expel methane gases both from their mouth, like in burps, and as flatulence. Toots. Greenhouse gases and livestock food production continue to be a key priority in sustainability efforts. However, significant improvements have been made to reduce the environmental impact of cattle. Advancements in production methods and technology have led to decreased food waste and increased efficiencies that mean fewer cattle can produce a greater volume of food. While beef may be a part of a largely sustainable supply chain here in the U.S., that is not the case elsewhere. In Brazil and other regions where forests are converted to pastures to raise cattle for slaughter, tropical deforestation has been tied to beef. Remember, it is not the plant or product itself that is unsustainable. It is the quantity in which they are produced or manufactured. When there is a lot of it, we now need a lot of resources. We can lessen our impact by reducing the amount we eat. Can you omit avocado out of your recipe? Can you pass on the chocolate on top of your dessert or in your trail mix? Or when grocery shopping, look to see if an item that you want has palm oil in it and look for that RSPO certification. And if it doesn't, check out another brand. Maybe that brand doesn't even have palm oil as an ingredient at all. And then you can buy that one. You do not have to cut out palm oil, soy, chocolate, coffee, avocado completely because you're probably gonna be really miserable. <laughs> Those are all delicious treats. Just try to reduce them. And when shopping, look for organic, local, seasonal, and fair trade items. This is an overview of ethical eating, but it isn't all inclusive, that's for sure. I would like to hear from you. What value-driven considerations contribute to your food choices? Share it with the Facebook group, starting sustainability. And if you have questions, comments, concerns that maybe you don't want to share on the Facebook group and you just want to send me a message privately, you're welcome to do that. I'm a part of the Facebook group. You can also send me an email. My email is kaylin, K-A-Y-L-I-N, at startingsustainability.com. And now it's time for our weekly challenge. So I'm going to draw a card real quick. It says, Research any local environmental charities you can volunteer with. If there aren't any, research how to start one of your own. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> that is something I have not done in my new hometown. I need to do some research on environmental charities around here. You know what I learned while I was on vacation? We played a game and one of the trivia questions was what percent of Americans have volunteered for one hour within the past year. And I was like, oh my gosh, but everybody volunteers, especially around Christmas time. So one hour of the whole year, it's gotta be something high, like 70%. And the answer was less than 25%. 
That's embarrassing. If you're part of that 25% that volunteers, good for you. Keep it up. And if you're not, it's not too late. You can still volunteer. You don't have to wait until Christmas to do it. You can do it anytime. And it doesn't have to be for long. Just one hour at the food pantry, within your church, a cleanup group, whatever. Pick your volunteer organization. I'm cracking up because I'm over here talking about all this ethical stuff, including animal welfare. And Ruger is in the room with me. And at the very end of this podcast, he starts snoring. I don't know if you guys can hear it or not. (laughs) Hopefully it's not recording. I guess I will find out when I edit. (laughs) But he's snoring in the background. I'll let him sleep because he's an old man and he's tired. The next episode will be July 11th. So happy 4th of July to everybody in advance. I hope you have a wonderful celebration. Please be safe. I want everybody to return (laughs) with all of their fingers and eyebrows after the holiday weekend. Also, this is your friendly reminder to celebrate Plastic Free July. So starting July 1st, start really focusing on different ways that you can cut plastic out of your lifestyle. It doesn't have to be zero plastic completely, but at least initiate a couple of different things that you can do to get plastic out like reusable grocery bags, reusable produce bags, buying a bar of soap instead of a bottle of soap, buying barred shampoo instead of a bottle of shampoo, even a real reusable stainless steel razor versus the plastic disposable razors. See what else you can do. If you really want to be adventurous and you have little ones, try cloth diapers to get rid of the plastic disposable diapers. There's a whole slew of things that you can do to eliminate plastic out of your life. Best of luck, and I am eager to hear about your adventures. Sustainer Nation, it has been another wonderful episode. Continue to save the world, and I will talk to you all again on July 11th. Have a great one. Bye. Feeling overwhelmed by climate change? Looking for sustainable and ethical brands to support? That Ethic is perfect for you. Ethic is a simple browser extension that helps you find sustainable and ethical brands online. Learn more at ethic.org. E-T-H-Y-K.org.